I applied for art school and I got so lucky. I got in on the waiting list um, because it was a contest for the exam. I didn't have a portfolio. I didn't have anything. You know, I just had like drawing I was doing on sheets of paper. I never had a class. I I think I kind of had like a a strange taste, not strange taste level, but taste level that came from bande dessinée, you know, comics. And Mm. so this wasn't the kind of illustration that looked good in art school. You know, for for teachers, they were very snob. It was like, what is that shit? And so I think I didn't have a portfolio. So my only hope was to get into like an entrance exam when it was a, yeah, an actual competition. And yeah, I got in three days before the start of the year. I was on waiting list like number 30 or something. (laughs) And, And that was the, I think that was the beginning of it all, really. This podcast is brought to you by The Ultimate Lettering Quiz. Find out just how much you really know about letters by taking the quiz for free on martinafrod.com slash quiz. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Open Studio. I'm your host, Martina Flora, and in this show, I have honest conversations with artists, designers, and creatives to uncover their paths and discuss the specific tactics they use to overcome challenges and succeed on their own terms. Today, I'll be having a conversation with Malika Favre. Malika is a French illustrator living and working in Barcelona. Her distinct style has made her one of the world most sought after commercial illustrators. In addition to her personal creations, running a successful online shop and publishing her books, she works for clients around the world. Publications such as The New Yorker and Vogue, as well as international brands like Sephora. During this show, we dived into Malika's early steps into illustration and art with her mother, the decisions that changed her life and career path, and her money mindset, and how that influenced her ability to make a good living as an illustrator. Malika, Malika shared openly experiences, but also her thoughts around social media and going viral, which is something she has experience with. And she shares great insights around how the character of a city can facilitate their accomplishments as an artist, which I think could be helpful for any artist thinking of relocating cities. You can find her on Instagram at Malika Fav, that is M-A-L-I-K-A-F-A. V-R-E, or online on malikafarb.com. Enjoy this conversation with Malika. Hello, Malika. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thanks, Martina. Thanks for inviting me. So, Malika, before before we get, we get into the now and your yep. story right now and the things you're doing right now, I like to explore a little bit about your past and where you come from. I was reading a little bit about you before we started, and um, I know that you're born in Paris, France, yeah. and you also have lived in London. Um, now you have moved to Barcelona. So let's start by the beginning. Um, yeah. And Paris. how was your upbringing in Paris? And I would like, I always, I always like to know a little bit about how how your context looked like in that time and how your family looked like. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I have a very special family, we're going to call it. Um, they're very eccentric. So so basically, I come from a, an environment that uh, I guess my parents were kind of came into themselves in the, you know, in the 70s. Mm. And in a way, they were a little bit hippie. I think my entire family is a little bit hippie. Um, So I grew up in that environment, like, for example, without any TV. My parents were both vegetarians, which in the 80s in France did not exist. Like, Mm. you were a pariah, basically. Um, But, for example, the fact that uh, we grew up, me and my brother, without TV meant that we had to find things to do, you know, Mm. as kids. And and for me, it was drawing. I think I was drawing every day. Uh, I was drawing with my mum because my mum is actually an artist. And uh, even though she never made a career out of it, mm. you know, she, mm. yeah, she kind of, she saw something, you know, I was really excited about drawing. She saw something in me and she really pushed me. Like she's the one who taught me, you know, about drawing, but also about mm. colors, composition, all of that. So I think I, gr- I can't remember 
myself not drawing. Mm. So that was kind of my context uh, growing up. And also, yeah, very, very open family, like very, we could talk about anything, even to a point where, to be honest, we could insult our parents, nothing would happen to us. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but in a way, I think it was very freeing. I had a lot of freedom as a kid, which means I was really naughty, but I think it really helped me become independent you know, faster than other kids, maybe. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that you had your mom kind of passing over all of this knowledge about color and composition and stuff. So you feel that this is the moment where you actually started developing yes. some artistic... Um, yeah, for sure. I think yeah. I always had it. I think it was something like, because for example, my brother was couldn't draw and he didn't mm. care about drawing and just wasn't his thing. He was more of a business guy, even as a kid. But, and I think for me, like I always loved it. I could, I had this like intense focus. Mm. I think that's, that was the most kind of the weirdest thing for me as a kid. Apparently I could draw for like six hours straight without moving. Mm. And it was quite strange for a kid to do that. It's even some of my uh, I remember uh, a friend of my mum thought it was really worrying and that I, you know, should take me to a shrink because it wasn't normal. But I think it it then became my strength because I can still do that now. It's like I have this extreme concentration when I draw where I really get in the vibe and it's hard for me to get out of it. And, what and, then, ah, and then there yeah. is there is actually another thing that's very important, I guess, in my childhood is that mm. I was born with a very strong strabismus. So my eyes were basically saying hello to each other, but on a permanent basis. So I looked funny. Um, uh, for me, like I could see like any other kids because I don't, you know, I, I didn't see the difference. I didn't see double, you know, or anything yeah. like that. But but I think also it made me a little bit of a loner when mm. I was really young. And, and the funny thing is that when I was draw, I mean, I got an operation when I was six to fix it mm. and it fixed it kind of, I, I'd say 90%. But then when I draw, even up to today, when I really focus, my eyes go like this. <laughs> so they still do. So it's funny. It's like, I think it's, maybe it has to, I think this had a, probably an influence on what I do today and the way I draw. In, in, which, in which way, I mean? Um, probably because, for example, I can't, I discovered very late that I can't see 3D. I mean, I can, for me, I can, I don't mm. see the world flat, but, but I discovered, you know, when, when they started to screen 3D movies in the cinemas and stuff. So like, I don't know when we were like 15 to 20 and I was going to the movie with my glasses and then I was like, uh, I see blurry. What's wrong with this? This is really <laughs> shit. <laughs> Why am I paying more for this? <laughs> <laughs> so then, I, so then, actually, I realized that there was something where, and I now mm. I know it. It's like I think I'm almost like a bird, you know, <laughs> mm. <laughs> who has the eyes on both ways. So I think my I don't I can't see the 3D. It really tires me, because my eyes never look exactly at the same point at the same time. Mm. So I think in a way, maybe the way I construct depth with colors and shadows has something to do with that. I think it has something to do with that. Yeah, well, it, may, it makes a lot of sense when you when you mention it, actually. And thinking of your work, for those that are listening that don't know Malika's work, I'm going to add Malika's website on our show notes so that you can get to know her work. Um, but when you mention this this new way of expressing depth through actually flat images, because yeah. most of the work you do is really flat and it's like shapes... Um, juxtaposition of shapes or shapes overlapping on yeah. top of each other, but you can still um, recreate scenes and you can still have it a sense of depth, but yeah. with very simple shapes, right? So yeah. it's interesting that something mechanical in the way you you see also had an impact on the on your artistic perspective. I'm, I'm, we, we'll never know, really, but I, never know, I kind yeah. of, I kind of think it does. I kind of, when, when I thought about it at some point, yeah. it was not long ago actually that I thought about it, and 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 it kind of makes sense somehow. Yeah. yeah. So you you had this upbringing with a with a very special family, as you mentioned. You had your mom kind of nurturing your talent from very early on. What came after that? What were the steps that came after, you know, growing up, you know, going to the kindergarten and then going to the school and then afterwards deciding a so, career path? 
Yeah, so that was actually a long road for me. Mm. Um, but I think also it has to do with the context in which I was raised and the context of society in the mm. in the 80s. Like, you know, employment was really bad, um, mm. you know, in Europe in general and in France. And there was this kind of, I think we grew up, my generation, you know, kind of being told that no matter, even if we study, like we have really long studies and we have, uh, you know, masters and PhDs, it's really, it's going to be really hard to find a job. Mm. So I think there was this kind of fear that, that in a way, um, and also I grew up in a family who didn't have a lot of money. So my mom was not working and my dad went back to, was actually working, but quit his job and went back to studying when I was 10. Mm. So I had a student, you know, student parent and another one who wasn't working. Yeah. And so, you know, we were living uh, of benefits and the help of my uh, grandfather. So I think as a teenager, I really like I had I was obsessed with making money with the idea of like having a viable job later on. Um, and I didn't want to be like my parents. I didn't want to struggle. Uh, I didn't want to, you know, I saw all the arguments and the tension and, and I think I kind of felt that money was freedom in a way. Mm. Um, so for that reason, I didn't even consider art as an option. Mm. Like for me, that was my hobby, but like no way it was a job. Like that's not a job. <laughs> yeah. So, so I actually did when I, in my teenage years, I realized I was also quite good at science. Hmm. mathematics, physics, I loved it. Um, I think I had the brain for it, like very logical. And and so I went into that because that was kind of the, you know, the golden path hmm. at school. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I kind of started thinking like, okay, I'm going to become an engineer, you know? So I went to prep school in physics and mathematics and I hated it. Um, so I think the first kind of turning point happened when I was 19, when I left, that's the first time I failed anything where I just left, you know, mm. in the, you know, in the middle of the, of the year. And, and then I realized, shit, what else am I good at? Mm. You know, because that was my thing. That was my escape. If I don't want to do science, what am I going to do? And I was like, okay, I can draw <laughs> because I never stopped. I was always drawing in class. I, I never stopped one day in my life. So I was like, okay, so I'm going to go, but I'm going to study advertising. I'm going to become mm. like a top art director. And, you know, they make a lot of money as well. <laughs> so this is when I, I, I applied for art school and I got so lucky. I got in on the waiting list because um, it was a contest for the exam. I didn't have a portfolio. I didn't have anything. You know, I just had like drawing. I was doing on sheets of paper. I never had a class. I never had a, you know, I, I think I kind of had like a, a strange taste, not strange taste level, but taste level that came from bande dessinée, you know, comics, which are really big in France and, and, and manga. And mm. so this wasn't the kind of illustration that looked good in art school. You know, for, for yeah. teachers, they were very snob. It was like, what is that shit? Yeah. And so I think I didn't have a portfolio. So my only hope was to get into like a entrance exam when it was a, yeah, an actual competition. And yeah, I got in three days before the start of the year. I was on the waiting list, like number 30 or something. <laughs> and and that was, the, I think that was the beginning of it all, really. You know, when I, sh when I changed paths, went to art school and studied advertising. I studied graphic design and advertising. Mm. And that took me to when I was 21 and when I left for London, basically. So you finished school and yep. you finished art school, you graduated yep. and later on you decided to go to London, right? Yeah, yeah so because I, I was 21. Um, I was, I don't know why I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I could work. I didn't feel ready. Hmm. I think I, I only got to appreciate what I learned in art school in Paris years later. Because my feeling at the time was like, oh my God, they haven't taught me anything, mm. like practical. I barely knew how to use the softwares. Uh, I had never worked on a client brief. It was all very arty in a way, very yeah. abstract. And I felt like I can't, like I can't work. And, and I don't know. And, and we got this opportunity, uh, me and my best friend, to, to go to a school in England. So the idea was just, oh, we're just going to do one year abroad, have fun. Um, you know, maybe graduate with the hats and uniforms, yeah. which I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll come back to Paris and I'll work, basically. And I never came back. I stayed 16 years. Yeah. So after that, I got really lucky. Yeah, I, I, I want to ask you then later about, you know, I'm always fascinated by, per, perhaps because I moved cities myself and that had a big impact on my 
career and yeah, my my life. Um, but I'm always kind of curious to know why you move cities and or the artists and guests that are in the podcast, why they move cities and yeah. how that impacted their career paths. Uh, but before we get into that, I want to know, so you moved to London and you you found, because I know that you first worked as a graphic designer before yeah. becoming a freelance illustrator. So I want to finish the story of yeah. how that started with your mom nurturing you, like moving later on onto um, studying something totally different that was, you know, you decided to then later join uh, art school. You graduated from art school, you moved to London, and now you found a job somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I went, I went, uh, so actually when I, when I moved to London, uh, with my best friend, we moved to, first we moved outside London. Hmm. So we moved to Farnham. It was a small village, uh, because we got both accepted into a, a bachelor, uh, in a school there, which was, I can't even remember what I was studying, to be honest. I think something like digital media, but it was an excuse. That's the reality. Hmm. Yeah. Um, as soon as I got into school, I started looking for an internship and, I got an internship at Airside, which I ended up working mm. at for six years. Um, so I think my at that point, my portfolio, even though, so I studied as a graphic designer um, and, you know, I, advertising as well, mm. but the, I was still drawing. Any opportunity I got, I was still drawing. So I had a lot of illustration in my portfolio in a way, even though it was applied to, you know, identity projects and stuff like that. And I think in a way, my profile, because I didn't know anybody, I didn't have any connection. I think I, I can't even remember how I knew of Airside, but mm. it was a small design studio. There were like maybe 12 people. Mm. And basically they, they had this, they had this, it was the only studio I knew that was doing illustration in-house and quite a lot of it. So they were, they didn't hire outsider, you know, illustrators. All their designers could draw. It was a very kawaii, you know, kind of Japanese, uh, minimal aesthetic, very colorful, very pop. And so when I applied for the internship, um, actually that's a funny story, this internship, because I remember I sent an email to apply for the internship and I never got an answer, like mm. nothing. And then three months later, I still hadn't found my internship. I got an email from one of the founders, Nat, uh, saying, did anybody reply to you? Oh, no, no, sorry. I got a reply saying, no, thank you. <laughs> like just yeah. like a generic, no, thank you. We're not interested. Yeah. And three months later, I got an email from Nat saying, oh, did, did anyone reply to you? And I said, no. <laughs> so I lied. And I think they didn't communicate between them. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, oh, do you want to come in for an interview? And, and I, I was like, yes, of course, yes, I'll come in. And so I came into London and I was expecting, I think I was expecting like a big sign on the street, you mm. know, saying airside. And actually they were in the basement of a Victorian flat, Victorian house. So first of all, I was half an hour late because I forgot the address. Uh, oh. I was in the street. I was going up and down and asking everybody if they knew who Airside was, which no one knew. No one knew. <laughs> so I was half an hour late. I ended up um, arriving, apologizing, feeling like really bad. Um, but Nat was really, really lovely. And and for the for the little story, back then um, Airside was also really famous because one of the founder and Nat's husband, Fred Dickin, was mm. one half of the band Lemon Jelly who were mm. doing, you know, a lot of trip up and they yeah. were really big in the, in the nineties in the UK. And so a lot of applicants, uh, wanted to work at Airside because they wanted to work with Fred. Like, so there was this kind of other layer to the studio where Fred was the big star. Mm. And I remember one of the first questions Nat asked me is like, so what do you think of the lemon jelly or, you know, do you like, and I was like, never heard of it. Oh my God. <laughs> because I had for me like it, it didn't reach Paris so I was like don't know who that is and I think it was kind of the moment where she was like you're hired <laughs> because there was no kind of fan thing going on and, and I think I was I, I wanted it for the right reasons in mm, a way yeah. and um, yeah and I got it, it happened really fast like I think the next day she told me can you start on Monday mm. and that was my internship like that was yeah the internship that changed my life like mm. I did three months of internship where I worked like a psychopath, like mm. really. And, and then, but then I still had to wait. Like, um, basically they were such a small studio and they didn't want to grow. 
So they couldn't, they didn't have the capacity to hire more people at that point. Yeah. So what I did is I left after my internship, I went to work in another studio called Unit 9, who were big fans of Airside. So that opened the door for me. I stayed there for a year. And a year later, um, Dick Hogg, who was one of the designers at Airside, I met him randomly in the street in London. And I was like, so how are you? You know, how are things? And he was like, oh, I'm good. By the way, I'm leaving. Mm. And my, the first thing that came out of my mouth was, can I have your job? Like, it just came out. And, you know, it was very un-British to say. <laughs> but, you know, and it was a little bit awkward. But then I went back. I mean, I went back to my, to my job and stuff. And the next day I got an email from Alex, another one from her side, saying, were you serious about it? Like, were you serious about what you told Dick yesterday? And I was like, yeah, I'll leave my job. I'll come work for you. And I think a week later, I had a, a job interview in a pub, drinking wine with them. Uh, really fun. And that's how I got my job. And I stayed there for six years. And you, you mentioned, you just mentioned that this was, this, this internship, internship really changed your life. In, in which way do you think that had an impact on where you are right now? Um, because there's, there's always, you know, in a career path, there's always milestones. Uh, yeah. So from what you just said, I can pinpoint that you know, going to our school was perhaps a milestone where you said like, well, this is the thing, right? So this is, you know, I was wrong joining an engineer yeah. career and, uh, and this is the right place to be for, for me. So when you joined the, the interge internship, um, that was another milestone for you. And in which, in which way do you feel or in which way do you identify those milestones in your life? I think... Uh, yeah, I, it definitely was because also it was the first time I was actually in a work environment. Mm. So it was the first time I could test myself and I could mm. see, do I have something to bring? Am I good enough? Uh, what are my skills? Mm. And actually, I think, you know, for example, the drawing for me, it's something that always came very naturally. And I think as a general rule, we tend to not value things we can, that come easy to us, mm. you know, and and, and we tend to think there is nothing special about it because it's not through hard work and suffering. Yes. <laughs> or maybe that's French. I don't know. But there was a little bit this feeling of like, you can't be complacent. If you're good at something, you should work on the other things, which is bullshit. Yeah. So, so basically, when I, I think I, I very, very quickly in the, when I did my internship, I realized that I was good. Mm. Like, you know, that I was fast. Mm. More than anything, I was fast. And they realized that too. <laughs> like, I remember I was, I was, I pitched, I was an intern and I pitched with them uh, for a big uh, MasterCard illustrated campaign, huge billboards in airports and we won. And I actually got to do those illustrations. Mm. So, you know, I wasn't just an intern who was making coffee and, and really fast, really quickly, I was making real projects for real clients. Um, you know, I was the cheapest designer there was back then. <laughs> and, and I think that's when I realized that, that there was no point for me pursuing, in a way, graphic design because I wasn't that good at it. Hmm. It wasn't my thing. Hmm. And, but illustration, I had something. Hmm. And, and I think for me, it's, it's when I really worked on my illustration, you know, on finding my voice. This is when it started, when I kind hmm. of thought, okay, this is what I'm good at. I need to work on that. You know, fuck logos. I'm never going to be good at it. But drawing, you know, this is my thing. It sounds like a dream job, what you're describing. It's a place where, you know, even being a design agency or an, an advertising agency, it is a place that allows you to develop that skill that you had already. Um, so I wonder, why did you decide to leave? What was, you know, what, what, was, <laughs> what was the background of that decision? Well, because... Or what, what were you pursuing? What did you think that you were missing by working for someone? I think of... when, I, when, I, when I entered Airside, I was very... Um, uh, I had very flexible styles. So mm -hmm. I could adapt. And actually, mm -hmm. that was part of the job, you know. I think we had a common aesthetic, of course. I loved that everything was pop, colorful, minimal. But their style was very strong. It was mm. very Japanese. It was very like these little cute characters. Um, and, 
and I was totally happy doing that and I loved it, you know, for years. But I think slowly, in a way, um, the fact that they let me explore my own style as well, because there was an another amazing, I mean, it was an amazing place. Huh? I love them. Um, what was great about it as well is that the studio had a shop. They had an online shop. And the idea was that any designer on this spare time, or you know, when you were waiting for feedback from a client or you had nothing to do, you could come up with something for the shop. Could be mm -hmm. a t-shirt, could be a sculpture. We even did jewelry. Um, so it, it, that was the, you know, the moment where you could kind of do what you felt like doing. Of course, it had to fit within the aesthetic or within, you know, the, the, the image that Airside had, but it was a place where you could develop more your own voice. And for me, that's how I found my style. I mm. found my voice by creating t-shirts and screen prints. And so the first thing I came up with was the, my first alphabet, which was the alpha bunnies, like little bunnies making sexual positions. Um, and, and I think this is the first time I was like, ooh, this is different. Like, mm -hmm. this is me. Um, and, you know, and every time you produce something, you had to submit it to the team on Monday morning and say, look, I came up with this. And then there was a vote or, you know, they were saying like, yes or no. And, and then they were putting it into production. And so basically that's how it started. So after that, I always had the client work and the airside work. Mm -hmm. And then on the side, I had my personal work, which was also being released through airside. And I think after six years, simply, I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't mm -hmm. want to do someone else's style. I didn't want to, I felt like, I felt I could, I could go further. And, and also I wanted to be paid more. <laughs> that was also yeah. the thing. Yeah. So fast forward. I don't know how many years, but a decade at least. Um, you're now an established illustrator. You have yeah. worked for big brands, big clients. It's been 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you have, you know, you exhibit often um, and your work shows up on the New Yorker cover often as well, which is a little bit of a, a stage for great talent. And I know that there, there might be a lot of people listening right now that are young illustrators yeah. and they look up to you and they want to be where you are right now and they want to see how you know how you made it right mm -hmm. but I'm now personally interested interested in understanding how is that for you how is that um, how is it for you to have all that exposure and recognition and if this is something you enjoy and if this is something that has as well downsides. Um, so if you feel that at some point all that exposure had an impact on the way you behave, on the work you do, on your results, on the way you made decisions. Well, it definitely has an impact on, on how I make decisions. But I think, I mean, there is famous and famous, you know, because I think it's kind of like, for me, I always see it as like a niche. Mm. I'm famous within a small niche. But really, like, you know, the guy next door doesn't know who I am. And I don't, I got recognized on the street maybe five times in my entire life, which is already good, <laughs> a lot, you a know, lot. <laughs> but five times it's not, you know. So, so I think in a way I, I really enjoy the notoriety mm. because it gives me access to amazing mm. clients and amazing projects. And, you know, it really, it gave me freedom, freedom mm. to say no, freedom to choose my project, freedom to be a little bit of a diva if I want to. Mm. And and so I think for me, it's only been positive. Like I don't regret any of it. Mm. Um, and the New Yorker is good exposure because mm. it's not, you know, you're not becoming the Kardashians, you know, you're, you're being exposed to like-minded people as well. So I yeah. think, you know, there is nothing nasty that came of that. I think it's almost, I get more scared when, when I do projects like, for example, when I did the, last year the poster of La Merced mm -hmm. in Barcelona, yeah. I did yeah. the poster of the city, um, the, the annual, you know, uh, festival of the city of Barcelona. And that put my work in every single home in mm -hmm. Catalonia. And that was different because I was not talking to designers and I was not, you know, it was everyone. Mm -hmm. And that was a little bit intense, like all the press going with it, all the emails you receive for like really bad projects, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like all the kind of the avalanche of reactions in Twitter and people finding it, you know, this is horrible. This is, I mean, there were some stories, you know, that this side I really don't like, like, you know, people commenting and saying like, oh my God, she's copying the New Yorker. That was hilarious actually. 
when they were actually saying I was copying the person doing the New Yorker covers. But, you know, you get, you kind of start getting these attacks. And yeah. I think this is a side of notoriety that I really hate. Mm. So I think that's also why I'm very protective of my image. Mm. I do very little video. Um, I'm not in the public eye. If you look at my Instagram, I think you can count on two hands how many photos of me there are. Mm. Um, I think I, I really make a difference between the persona and the work. Yeah. And I know that I could be more famous if I put my personal life on there, mm. you know, if I shared more of that, but I don't want to, I'm not interested no. like, because that's also has its downside and I don't want to enter that world. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something that you said before, because you just mentioned that you left that job because you didn't only want to develop your own voice, but you also wanted to make more money. And I love... Yeah an illustrator who makes that statement, because I feel that in our discipline, there's enough negative thinking around what is possible for us as yeah. artists, that we cannot make money, that we don't, we cannot find clients. And going back to some of the things you said in the beginning related to your upbringing, you mentioned that it was because you didn't have money as a kid, it was very important for you um, as you were growing up and you were a teenager and you were choosing your career path, it was very important for you to, to do something that will make you money. And yeah. looking at your success right now and that you're a well-paid illustrator um, and you work for big clients, um, I wonder if you think that this mindset that you had um, had an impact on your success. If you feel that yeah. this idea of like, hey, I want to make money no matter what I do. Um, you feel that this attitude had an impact on, on how you are paid nowadays. Yeah. So I, I think, of course, I think it did. And I think it's, it, it also, I changed the way I thought about money and the way I perceived money changed a lot over the years. Mm. I think when I was a teenager, uh, I was quite obsessed and, you know, and my brother as well, actually, he's, he's very successful too. <laughs> and, and, but I think I kind of, I was thinking of money like for almost for the wrong reasons. I was mm. valuing it for the wrong reasons. Um, because what happened is, Actually, what happened when I was at Airside is as well being in such a small studio, I had access to everything. Like there was no like hiding the budgets and everything. So I knew exactly how much money they were making yeah. on projects and I knew how much I was paid. Mm. So, so, I mean, and I like numbers. So it was very easy for me to work out that there was big margin, you know? Yes. And, and, and I think also being in, also I have to say that the London context made it possible mm. because for example, Barcelona is much harder. Mm. It's much tougher. Budgets are much smaller. So I think it's harder to make it as an artist and to value yourself because no one else does, mm. you know? Mm. So, but in London, there was money everywhere. Mm. Like I, I could see the projects we were working on and how much money there was. And I was like, if this is basically, if I'm doing this entire project almost on my own within this studio, this money exists. Mm. So of course you're not going to get the same fees as an entire studio, but I realized there is money in illustration. Yeah. If you, if you value yourself, if you find the right clients, not, you know, and that's also the thing. Then later on when I went freelance, um, of course I realized that uh, there is no free lunch. A lot of money often means very little freedom. Mm, mm. You know, it's, it's not paradise out there. Mm. The best projects, it's not that they are badly paid, but like for me, I love editorial, you know, mm. I love magazine covers. Never is a magazine going to pay you the same as an advertising company mm. for a project for the same amount of work. Yeah. But the value of it impacted as on the world, the, 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 the quality of the work you can do is the value. So I think also at some point I realized I want money, but why do I want money? It's not to buy myself nice things and, you know, like show off what I want money because I don't want to have to worry about that. And I want to be free. I want to be free to say no and free to say yes. And I think that's, I see money as a way to buy my freedom in mm, a way I love and that. to say no to money. <laughs> So you think it's, I never chose projects based on money. I never did. Like if, if there wasn't something good that could come out of it, something at least like there are a lot of, I was proposed a lot of big money projects uh, that went against what I believed uh, or, and I had to say no. It's like, I think it's, it's a drug. So you have to be really careful. 
Yeah, totally. And there's so many windows you open right there that I would like to explore. So you mentioned, and I think this is the perfect segue to speak about the topic that I mentioned before that I love understanding more about when when I have guests on the podcast that move cities or relocated. Um, and you mentioned before, you know, that you felt that in London there was the money and that in Barcelona things are different. And I want to ask you, what, in which way do you feel? So you moved to London very early on when you finished, when you were leaving art school and you, you found employment there. And I want to ask you, how do you feel that London had an impact on your career as, as an artist? In which ways? Because probably the, it wasn't only the, you know, it wasn't only just that the fact that there was the money or that no. there was like a lot of jobs available, right? So I, want, I, no. wonder, yeah. I wonder first, why did you decide at that time to move to London and how that impacted your career? And why now you decided to relocate to Barcelona and how I, I can imagine that the motivations to do one and another were really different yeah. because you were also in very different moments in life and in your career. So I'm curious about um, understanding more about this. So, so London was, uh, I mean, what, what I loved about London and what really, for me, London defined me. Like mm. I, who I became today, like as a, in terms of career, mm. uh, I think I owe it to London for mm. sure, for sure. Uh, I loved it. First of all, I was in love with the place. Um, it was very tough, you know, it was a very expensive city, mm. uh, not a great quality of life. Weather was shit, <laughs> you know, so, so that's not why we stayed uh, in general. But what was amazing in London and what I loved, and I think that, in a way, is very different in Paris or Barcelona or even like Milan or Italy. I mean, I think we're more Latin people. Mm. And what, what I loved about London and that I miss, you know, sometimes is that in London, no one cares who you know. Mm. No one cares. It's not about connections. It's about good work. Mm. Even if you don't know anybody, you can land a job for the Tate Modern or... You know, if they've seen your work somewhere and the work is good enough, they will give you the opportunity. Mm. There is none of that nepotism that you have in Latin countries mm. and in France as well. You know, I think that's also why I was scared of France, because in Paris, I didn't know anybody. I didn't mm. know anybody connected to that world. And 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 so I was like, I'm never going to get a job, a cool job, because I don't have the connections. And I think in London, I made it because I was doing good work and it was getting seen. And and also there were so many amazing design studios. You know, there was so much creativity. There were so many designers there and illustrators. But people were coming from, the difference as well is that people were coming from outside to come and work with designers in London. Yeah. So you could be in London and have projects for Japan, for the US, for Switzerland, from everywhere. It's much more difficult. You know, uh, France is much more, you know, for French brands, for French people. And there is a lot of work there mm. because there is a big luxury industry and creative industry. But it's the same here in Barcelona. I, I, I know a few people who work internationally, but a lot of people here work nationally. Mm. And, and that's, you know, your, your circle of possibilities is so much smaller. Mm. Mm. So I think in a way, London allowed me, in a way, being in London allowed me to have the luxury to leave London. Mm. Because by the end of it, my clients were not even in London. They were everywhere else in the world. Yeah. And, and so I think when I, you know, I spent 16 years in London and I enjoyed it, like everything, the vibes, the parties, the pubs, the friends, the, the theater, I mean, everything was amazing. But also it's a city for the young. It's yeah. like the quality of life, it, I mean, the lack of it, it catches up with you. Mm. And I think when I reached a certain age, like I moved on my own, in my own flat when I was 30, which was, and I was the first one of my friends to do so. I still have friends who flat share at 40. Yeah. yeah. And so when I moved into my own flat, you know, that was a big milestone. And then I got myself an assistant. Then, you know, but I was still working from home. And at some point I was like, why am I here? Why mm. am I still here? It's like, yeah. I don't go to parties. You know, I don't have the same social life I had before. I travel a lot. Um, do I want to be coming back to London every time? You know, it's yeah. is this. So I think that's when I knew um, yeah, I think it's more or less when I was like 32, 33, where I was like, no, now I, I want to slow down. 
Yeah. I want to have a better quality of life. And in London, you can't slow down because mm. everybody's working like crazy. So if you slow down, you feel lazy, you have social pressure. It's like you want to go to the pub all the time or you want to do things all the time and everybody's working late. <laughs> so that's when I felt like, no, I need to go and find a place where I can have the type of life I want to have now, mm. which is more chilled, long lunches, sun, and I sort of Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, it's like the obvious solution, right? Like the obvious place to to go to, right? I loved, I also I had a connection to, because also when I moved to London, I didn't know anybody. I mean, I went with my best friend, but I had to reconstruct my entire life. Mm. And I think when I decided to move to Barcelona, uh, it happened, I was, so actually when it actually happened, uh, what was it, four years ago? So yeah, I was like 36 and I was scared because I was like, mm. I don't want to have to start again. How am I going to make friends? You know, like, yeah. so I knew I wanted to go to a city that I knew mm. uh, where I had connections, where I had friends, something where I didn't feel I was starting from scratch. Yeah. And so for me, the two cities I was thinking of was Mexico City, where I've been many times and I have family uh, and friends and Barcelona, mm. uh, which I visited as well many, many times. And yeah. and. And I knew a lot of designers from Barcelona that I met, like when I met you, you know, um, yeah. at conferences. So I kind of had connections. I knew they would welcome me. I knew the city would welcome me. And so I decided, yeah, I decided for Barcelona. I, I love that. I never thought about this. Um, I'm personally also like uh, at this stage of life, I, I'm looking for different th things from a city that, that I was looking for when I was in my 30s or 20s, right? So, yeah. um, and I think now I'm much more open to the idea of relocating cities. And um, and I think this this concept of like going to a place where you don't have to start over and you don't have to go through all of this struggle of like getting to know people and making friends and yeah. um, and having some, you know, ground already, that's a, a great, um, like a great position to be when you move to a new city, right? Yeah, I think it's a great starting point. It's, it's almost totally. like, actually, I, I still like made a lot of friends, you know, in I the past imagine. three years. Yes. I still made, a, like, we have new friends now. I also, I met my, I met my partner here. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a different life to the life I had when I arrived. But I think yeah. it's almost like having that safety net, yeah. uh, not feeling completely alone. Yeah. And honestly, also, I think I would have freaked out if I had been alone because understanding and getting used to Spanish bureaucracy yeah, I can. And the way things are, because yeah. it's a complete departure from London in many, many ways. So it's scary. Yeah. So thank God I had friends. Thank God, you know, I had I had my assistant here. Thank God, like, I, you know, I needed people to help me. Otherwise, I would have been on the Eurostar back to London in no time, I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, no, it really... Yeah, it really, it really helps. But it's true that I still find the, I mean, the creative industry is very different here. And in a way, I feel a little bit bad because I'm not actively looking, mm. you know, to work for clients here. Mm. Because this is not why I came. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of, I, I didn't come to work for clients yeah, here. Exactly. Yeah. I came for something else. This is not what you want from the city. Exactly. Yeah. This yes. is not what I was looking for. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, and I, no regrets, you know, I, I, I still love London, but I think I left at the right time. Hmm. It's like a relationship, you know, if you leave too late, no. Totally, totally. I want to take a left turn before we, we yeah, we call it a day in our <laughs> show. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about um, social media, because you mentioned before that, um, you know, you don't expose, you don't like exposure so much. You don't, you'd like to protect your personal life. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you have a big, I have a big following <laughs> on social media. And yeah. I wonder really like how that, um, how do you feel that social media helped you? If you feel that it helped uh, your career as, as an artist. Um, and if you think that nowadays it's, um, it's for you an important part of your work. Or is something that developed on its own and you didn't do anything about it and it just happened? Um, but I want to know a little bit about your relationship with social media. Well, it definitely, I, I, I spent a lot of time doing yeah. it. A lot of time doing Instagram. Uh, the rest I've given up on. I realized I can only focus 
on one network, one social network at a time. I can't, I can't do everything. Otherwise, I would never have time to draw. Yeah. Um, no, the way it happens. Well, the yes, I do have a big following, but the work has a big following. So for me, this is a different thing. Yeah. Um, I see it. I and I always I approached it when it started as a newsletter. Hmm. I hated writing newsletters. I found it boring. And I thought, okay, no, now that, you know, Instagram is a newsletter. This is a way to update people. And I've always enjoyed, actually, I do it myself. I really enjoy doing it, but I've never had like a big strategy. Hmm. I don't like post at certain times because it's better. Hmm. I don't care. I post when I want to post. Sometimes I post three times, you know, and then sometimes I don't post for three days and, and that's life. But it gets to you though. I have to say it's not... It's like, it's very addictive. Uh, I probably do too much of it. And, and I can see how it can be really dangerous. Mm. I think I took a stance in like, for me, because I consider it like a newsletter, for example, I don't feel like I have to interact with mm. people that much. For me, I don't have time to interact. Mm. And I, 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 I made peace with that. Like, I don't feel guilty about it. And I think people understand it. I'm like, I'm showing you, you know, what I've been up to, na na na, but I'm not going to answer every single comment, you know, on it because, again, I don't have time. Mm. And for me to produce this work, I need time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, but then where it really helps, I don't think, I don't know if it helps so much in terms of getting projects mm. or getting the right type of projects. Because mm. if someone, if a client comes to me, not because he's interested in the work, but because he's interested in the following, then we have a problem. Like I've never, for example, it's something I absolutely refuse. Like I remove it from any contract, like mm. to contractually post something. No, 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 no. My Instagram is my baby. No one touches it. If the work we do together is good, I'll post it for free. Yeah. It's Christmas. Yeah. And if it's not, I won't talk about it. Yeah. But it's kind of like, for me, it's not, it's not something I monetize and it's not something I will ever monetize. Mm -hmm. But where it really helped me, I think, is for the online shop. Yeah. I think it it really uh, broadened, you know, my exposure to, you know, and, and it really helped develop my online shop, which for me started, um, I always had one. And I think I kind of wanted to reproduce what Airside had, mm. you know, this space to do personal project and to be free and mm. not lose that thing. So that's why I always had limited edition and because it pushed me to do exhibitions, to do personal work. Yeah. And... And then I always saw it as like a little side, little side project outlet, not the one that was again going to be commercially that viable. Yeah. And actually, it became its own thing, yeah. like <laughs> it became its own business. And and I think thanks to Instagram, it really grew because, of course, because the more followers you have, the more your work gets shared, the more people see the work in other people's home. I mean, definitely, yeah. I've seen, you know, uh, there is a proportional increment of people buying stuff you know every time i get a big exposure like a cover for the new yorker or every time i put something on instagram that goes viral Amazing. but i never create work for that like yeah. the purpose is never you know get more followers and no no it just happened but it's amazing because the kind of this audience you have expanded throughout the years is now the one that allows you to also expand your shop and with that your your personal work so it's a great relationship in a way and that's i guess why you keep on feeding the the beast, you know, the beast <laughs> because it actually brings you something back right which is like the possibility for you to develop new work and to feed yeah. your shop and and of course make a living from it right no of course and also to it i mean for me at least also what it allowed is to hijack the way things are for example mm. to self-publish a book yeah. Yeah. you know i yeah, love totally. the books like i, I co-publish them with my publisher we're on equal grounds yeah. You know, it's not the relationship that you have usually where you don't have the distribution, you don't have the clients. So basically you only get like 10% royalties for something. No, I can decide things on my own terms. And yeah. I almost see things more like as a collaboration, yeah. you know, it's because at the end of the day, I have the same exposure as my publisher. So it's, it gives Amazing. you strength, I think. And it's, yes, it gives you power. Yeah. But also yeah. it's something, I think the, the issue we have now is that, people expect things to happen really fast. And yes. so you want to go from zero to 100K followers in mm. a month. Mm. 
you can't get quality mm. if you if you do that. For me, it's something that, of course, I had these big moments of having big traffic, like when I did the Kama Sutra, or you know, when I did every time I do a New Yorker cover, I get lots of traffic. It's like these are the projects that bring people to you, but the rest is just patience putting up, you know, putting good work up, doing good work and yeah. waiting. And I think it kind of, if you, if what you do is special, people will share it. Yeah. So you have but to almost be yourself. in between those like non-special things, like yeah. in between those, those things that go viral, there's a lot of like exactly. regular work. Yeah. Right? A lot of regular work. And yeah. also, and also. I think sometimes we have blind faith in mm. social media and we take it as like a giant focus group. Yeah. This is not like this is not the way. I've seen it as well with my own work. Sometimes I I remember when I did the poster of Montreux Jazz Festival, which is mm. one of my favorite pieces of work, favorite projects I ever did. Um the first time I put it on social media, it got like a really uh, kind of reaction. Not much, you yeah. know? And I was a bit surprised. I was a bit like, "Oh, come on, guys." I worked really hard on that. <laughs> All that negative space. But I don't know if it's, it was something that people were not used to at the time. Mm. Um, but anyway, every time I reposted it later on or it came back, it started growing, it started growing. If today yeah. I post the same poster, it will be on the top post of the year. Yeah. So it's funny how you have to be, like you have, to, in a way, you have to trust yourself. Yeah. You have to trust yourself. And the same way, You, you can't please your followers. You have to please yourself first and eventually they'll follow. <laughs> Amazing. So I want to talk about, to wrap it up, I want to talk about one of the covers that actually went viral. Um, I read on an article that you did, you know, you did this New Yorker's health, medicine and bodies yeah. issue in April 2017. Um, in which the illustration called Operating Theater was designed from the perspective of the patient, featuring four female surgeons. So you said that the aim was to capture the feeling of people watching you lose consciousness, right? Right, as you lay on the on the OP uh, bed or yeah. yeah, on the room. Um, and I want to ask you: this went viral, and a lot of like teams or surgeon teams took pictures that uh, emulated your your cover and this was you know was a big thing on social media so i want to ask you a little bit about how that experience is and how you know what are what are the things that you learn from those experiences in terms of like okay they bring me a lot of exposure but at the same time you know how your work can create that kind of reaction right it was a, it was a, to be honest it was one of the most amazing moments mm. um also because uh i didn't do it on purpose i didn't plan for it to mm. be viral i didn't plan for people to do that yeah and and i actually think before that so i had done some new yorker covers before that but the, the new yorker covers i had done were like the page turner or in the shade were very Uh, glamorous mm. you know they were very very me in a way but they were very iconic of my type of work but and I had done the Bob Dylan cover as well which was Bob Dylan but this was the first time where I remember because uh, Francoise Mouly the art director mm. sent me an email saying we're doing a new issue so it had never been it wasn't a theme that existed before uh, which is Yeah, the body, science, the body and medicine or something. Um, can you send us some ideas? Mm -hmm. So which happened. And when I had no idea, because it also I couldn't research what, what was the vibe of this issue, you know, uh, because it hasn't been done before. And, and so I think when I sent some ideas, one of the ideas came from a very personal place, mm. which was my memory as a child from being on that operating table mm. when they operated my eyes. And, and that fear, I mean, it's the first time I went into full anesthesia, you know, and oh, yeah. I still remember that moment. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't know, it came to me as like, this is how I felt. So I'm going to show it from my point of view. And I was actually operated on by a woman. Mm. So in a way, that cover was an homage, you know, to that woman and to that moment. Yeah. But, but what happened after that, when it went live, is it, it took a life of its own, really. Oh because God. a surgeon Coast saw bumps. it. Oh, no, but it was amazing. Like a, sur a surgeon saw it. And I didn't do it consciously, but it's true that um, uh, women surgeons are never represented. Hmm. You know, hmm. it's, yeah. it was the first time. So, 
So it was a, and on the cover of the New Yorker. So for women surgeons out there, it was a big thing. But then also the angle I used was such an easy angle to reproduce because every operating table had that light. So it was very, it, it, you, you needed nothing, you yeah. know, you needed a phone and, and women surgeons. And so this is actually thanks to this woman, Susan Pitt, who launched, who started the New Yorker Challenge and saying, you know, women surgeon out there, show yourself. Yeah. It was crazy. We received more than 5,000 images oh my from God. everywhere. They were just like pouring over and, and people were doing articles about it. And, and, you know, I was really humbled because mm. I can't say like, yay, that was a, you know, no, it's, it's just, I just did what felt right. And mm. I mean, of course I'm a big feminist, mm. but, and I, I do a lot of, I mean, I empower women through the drawings a lot. I draw a lot of, you know, strong women, but it wasn't like a conscious decision. And mm. I also think that Francoise saw it, you mm. know, because my first sketch was with women. And mm. then when I develop it, I gave her some options where there was a mix mm. and she's the one who said, no, 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 go back. Go yeah. back to your first draft because she saw in it what I didn't see when I sent the sketch. And I think that's why I got the cover. Mm. So I think it's, yeah, it was an amazing, honestly, it was really an amazing moment because that's good notoriety. You know, that's, that's something going viral for the right reasons, something that's helping. Totally. And, and I, I feel that it's also a lot of, you know, it's something for us illustrators and creatives to learn from, you know, we tend to think that our that we don't contribute enough, that our, yeah. you know, our work doesn't save lives. And in a way, an image can have such an impact in, in visualizing a certain group or a certain discipline that is yeah. uh, hidden or not exposed enough. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. And we and should appreciate more what, what we are capable of with yeah, our work. Yeah, but I, I also think there is a lot of pressure that comes, especially in today's society, that comes with, it's also, it comes with social media, with this thing. It's like, you have to help charities. You have to do good in the mm. world. You have to, you know, it's also a lot about image. Mm. Um, and you have to say something. It can't just be pretty. But yeah. I think it's, there is a lot of pressure associated to that. And I actually think for me, it's if you tell yourself, I'm going to do empowering work, I'm mm. going to, usually it feels forced and mm. it doesn't come naturally. I think it comes from within. I think who you are as a person comes out in your work. Yeah. And naturally, if you like nature or if, you're, if you care about organic food or if you can you're gonna get involved in those projects that talk about that and you're not yeah. gonna get involved in other projects that go against your values so i think just doing this for me is enough i think we have to stop pressuring ourselves of like oh we have to be everything to everyone i think it comes it comes eventually i mean at least for me that's what happened like but then for example in when that cover came out the one thing i took from it is where before I was letting all my instincts do the work and not mm. thinking about the potential significance of something. Mm. After that, I changed that. And I purposely, you know, kind of always looked of how can I make the story stronger? Mm. What is it going to tell people? What the, how does it reflect society? I think I question more. And in a way, the, I think the work became better after that because it's a balance of going on instinct and trusting your, your instinct, yeah. but also questioning because my work is going to be seen what does it say what's the message you know and and i think it's then it it allows you to add something maybe that you hadn't seen before and it makes the work stronger i love that malika we have done <laughs> so many different things and so many different parts of your creative path and also your approach as an artist and i bet that those listening got a lot of insights uh, into your life, but also how it is to, you know, grow up and kind of not knowing what to do with your life and <laughs> turning into an illustrator that can live from that and uh, makes a great, great living out of it. So I want, I want to ask you to wrap it up. What would you say to some, someone that is starting? I would say, uh, trust your instinct get feedback. This is the most mm. important thing. Get feedback from people you trust and, and take that feedback in, uh, because yeah. that really helps. Um, and work hard, I mean, work hard because there's mm. nothing, nothing comes easy if you're lazy and be patient. 
Mm. It's kind of be patient. I think it's you're the first one. You have to value yourself first before other yeah. people can value you. Lastly, where can people find you? I want to add all of the links to, and this is what I always do, to add all of the links to our um, show notes so that everyone can find you. You mentioned your books, you mentioned your prints, you mentioned your shop. Um, where can people find you besides your website? Well, that's basically, I'm mainly, you know, as I said, I, I can only do one thing at a time. So I'm mainly on Instagram uh, the, and then on T, Instagram and my website. That's Amazing. where I live in the virtual world. <laughs> Great. And from your website, we can get onto your online shop, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's direct. We can, we can find the, the, the books and the prints and everything. Exactly. Actually, the books are sold out, but third edition of my book is coming out in a couple of weeks. Great. So we're going to add all of these links to our show notes. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much, Malika, for Thanks, being Martina. there. And for a pleasure. It's nice to see you again. Totally. <laughs> Years later. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you so much for, for taking the time today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. See you in the next episode. Bye bye. Ciao, ciao. So this is it. I hope you loved this episode. You can find me, the host of the show, on social networks at Martina Flor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have a question or comments, go to martinaflor.com slash podcast, where you can see previous episodes, find show notes, and send voice memos with your comments and questions. You can also watch these episodes on YouTube. Just go to martinaflor.com slash YouTube to find them. You can, of course, listen to all our episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you loved this episode, subscribe to this podcast. And if you leave us a review, it will help others find us. Thank you all for listening and see you in the next episode of Martina Flores Open Studio. Bye-bye. Thank you.